Listen, we're continuing on in the book of John in our series that we've entitled That You Might Believe. And we're going we're gonna to look at the end of John chapter 7, specifically verses 40 through 52. And so I just want you to stand out of reverence for God's word as we read John chapter 7, beginning in verse 40. And I'm going to read through verse 52. This is what John records. When some from the crowd heard these words, they said, this truly is the prophet. Others said, this is the Messiah. But some said, surely the Messiah doesn't come from Galilee, does he? Doesn't the scripture say that the Messiah comes from David's offspring and from the town of Bethlehem where David lived? So the crowd was divided because of him. Some of them wanted to seize him, but no one laid hands on him. Then the servants came to the chief priests and the Pharisees who asked them, why didn't you bring him? And the servants answered, no man ever spoke like this. And when the Pharisees responded to them, or then the Pharisees responded to them, are you fooled too? Have any of the rulers or Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd, which doesn't know the law, is accursed. Now Nicodemus, here he is again. The one who came to him previously and who was one of them said to them, Our law doesn't judge a man before it hears from him and knows what he's doing, does it? You aren't from Galilee too, are you? They replied. Investigate and you will see that no prophet arises from Galilee. And I want to take kind of a different angle on this text. And I want us to consider this idea that encountering Jesus changes everything. Encountering Jesus changes everything. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I know we have had a worshipful morning, and I pray that you would calm my mind and my soul, that you would give me physical and spiritual strength to preach your word to your people, because God, we are ready and we need to hear from you. And God, if I ask for too little, then do more. It's in the precious name of Jesus we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Encountering Jesus changes everything. Many of you have probably heard of the name Nelson Mandela. Passed away in 2013. Mandela was a monumental figure who many of us, we've heard of. Uh, he was the first president of South Africa, and he spent the majority of his life fighting against colonialism and wanting to see peace and prosperity for South Africa. Now, many of us encountered Mandela through school or research or books that we've read, but for others, their interac interactions with Mandela were much more personal. One such person is a man named Christo Brand. Christo Brand is a very interesting individual. So while Nelson Mandela was serving 27 years in prison, he was already in prison. In 1978, at the age of 18, Christo Brand became Mandela's prison guard. And he didn't necessarily want to be a prison guard, but because of South Africa's conscription laws at the time, he had to either serve in the military or the police force or in the prison system. And so he chose the latter to serve in the prison. I know I'm on shaky ground, right? Because I'm talking about South Africa with two South Africans in the room. So if I'm getting any of this wrong, correct me quietly so the church still thinks I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> but so he became a prison guard. And he was assigned to oversee Nelson Mandela. 
And during his time, Bran and Mandela struck up what would become a very unlikely friendship. Bran being a white prison guard and Mandela being a black prisoner, it defied all the normal expectations of the prison system. And to be quite honest, it defied quite a few social norms at the time. And they spent years with Mandela in prison and Bran as his guard caring for one another. While Brand would look out for Mandela's physical well-being, Mandela cared for Brand's emotional well-being. In 2004, Brand released a book that was entitled Mandela, My Prisoner, My Friend. It's a great book. You should read it, in which he recounts how this unique friendship came to be and how it forever changed Brand's life. Brand and Mandela actually remained close all the way up until Mandela's death. So even after Mandela was released from prison. In fact, Brand was invited to a party at Mandela's house when Mandela was 93 years old. He had already finished being the president. He was retired, 93 years old. And it was a party celebrating 21 years of freedom for Mandela. And Brand notes how while he was at the party, Mandela didn't want to ever leave his side. If Bran wandered off, Mandela would be frantically looking for him because he just wanted to be physically near his friend. In fact, even though he was so exhausted that night, Mandela refused to go to bed unless Brand was there with him. Bran reflected on that evening, and this is what he wrote. He says, Mandela refused to go back into the house with anyone but me. I helped him to his feet, and he put his arm through mine as we walked indoors. I helped him to the bathroom, then he wanted to sit and talk. I was his minder again, his warder. He needed that reassurance. I was the only one at the party who had put him to bed night after night after night during the bleakest days of his life. And now it was natural that I was the one to do it again. We talked for a while, and then his little granddaughter came to join us, and she wanted to know, what was it like when he was in prison? What did you do to help him? I was glad to be able to tell her that I found as many ways I could to make his burden lighter, and he did the same for me. After Mandela's death, Bran reflected on his friendship with Mandela, and he noted how this chance encounter in prison changed everything. It changed how he viewed his country. It changed how he viewed prisoners. It changed how he viewed people in general, but specifically people of a different ethnicity. And Bran noted, and he said that this encounter with Mandela in 1978 changed everything he thought he knew and redirected the entire course of his life. Now, some of us have similar stories like that, though maybe not quite as remarkable, but we have similar stories in our own lives, how a chance encounter, how a seemingly insignificant moment, how a random event has challenged how we thought our life would look, and it has shaped the way that we now live in this world. And here's what I want to propose to you this morning, that encountering Jesus is one of those moments. That encountering Jesus will shape the way that you live in this world. That encountering Jesus has the potential to change the course of your life forever. Here's the reason why. Because when we encounter Jesus, it challenges how we view this world, how we view ourselves, and how we view God himself. And what we see in our text this morning is that when people encountered Jesus... They were challenged by him. But even greater still, we see how a simple encounter with Jesus has the potential to change 
everything. So here's what I want to do this morning. Again, I know I'm taking kind of a unique angle at it, but I want to walk through this text that we just read, and I want to show you how encountering Jesus changes everything because it challenges us in two very specific ways. So I just want to focus on those two things that encountering Jesus challenges, not only of those lives recorded in John 7, but in our lives as well. You with me? All right, so here's the first truth that I want you to see. Encountering Jesus challenges our preconceived notions of Jesus. Encountering Jesus challenges our preconceived notions of Jesus. More specifically, though, our preconceived notions about who Jesus is and how he should act. Look again with me at verses 40 through 44. It says, when some from the crowd heard these words, they said, this truly is the prophet. Others said, this is the Messiah. But some said, surely the Messiah doesn't come from Galilee, does he? Doesn't the scripture say that the Messiah comes from David's offspring, from the town of Bethlehem where David lived? So the crowd was divided because of him. Some of them wanted to seize him, but no one laid hands on him. So... Remember where we are in our walk through the book of John. Last week, Dr. Jarvis Williams looked at verses 10 through 39. And in those verses, we saw how after Jesus' initial conversation with his brothers at the beginning of the chapter, Jesus travels to Jerusalem in secret to attend the festival of shelters. And again, initially, he kind of keeps his presence hidden because he knows that people are trying to kill him. But then we learn in verse 14 that when the festival was already half over, Jesus went up into the temple and he began to teach. And when he teaches, the basic thrust of his message is that he is the Messiah, that he is the deliverer promised by God. He is the fulfillment of all God's promises. And then in verse 37, in the midst of the festival of shelters, he declares this, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And as Dr. Williams explained, part of the festival of shelters involved water. It involved water flowing from the altar of the temple and spilling out. And this water was meant to remind the people of the water that God had used to sustain them. The water God used during the story of the Exodus, the water that sprung forth from the rock in the wilderness when the people were desperate. And similarly, during the festival of shelters, they were praising God for the continued gift of water that allowed their crops to grow. So, so Jesus, right, is, is relating himself to this water, just like we saw during the Passover festival. Jesus is presenting himself as the better lamb. Now he's presenting himself as the better water. We'll see next week him present himself as the better light. But in essence, this water reminded the people of the provision of God, the faithfulness of God, and the fulfillment that God provides. And so through Jesus' declaration, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Jesus is declaring that he is the better water. He is the provision of God, not simply to satisfy the body, but to satisfy the soul. He is the faithfulness of God, and ultimately, he is God's fulfillment of all that God has promised. So what Jesus is declaring is ultimately that this festival that you are celebrating, it's meant to draw your attention to me. 
And so then our text picks up in verse 40 and says, so when some of the crowd heard these words, they said, this truly is the prophet. Others said, this is the Messiah. But some said, surely the Messiah doesn't come from Galilee, does he? Doesn't the scriptures say that the Messiah comes from David's offspring and from the town of Bethlehem where David lived? But I want you to pay close attention to verse 43. So the crowd was divided because of him. And so what we see in this moment is something that we have seen throughout the entire book of John up until this point. Everyone seems to have their own opinion of not only who Jesus is, but what the Messiah has to look like. You with me? We saw this with Nathaniel in John, in John 1, right? Can anything good come out of Galilee or out of Nazareth? Nicodemus in John 3, thought that, thought that he was simply a good teacher. The Samaritan woman in John 4 initially thought that Jesus was nothing more than a thirsty Jew. The Jewish leaders in John 5 saw him as a lawbreaker for healing on the Sabbath. Others saw him as blasphemous for equating himself with the Father. The people in John 6 saw him primarily as a miracle worker who could meet their physical needs, and then they tried to make him king on their terms. His brothers at the beginning of John 7 saw him as a means of honor and prestige, but even they didn't believe he was the Messiah. Others thought he was demon-possessed because he was challenging the status quo. And here in our text, some see him as the, as the fulfillment of the prophet of Deuteronomy 18. Some think he could be the Messiah, but they're not quite sure. Like Nathaniel, they didn't believe the Messiah would come from Galilee, and they assumed nothing good could come from Galilee. And I'd be willing to argue that this belief that Nathaniel had, the belief that we see in the people in John 7, that it that, he, that Jesus couldn't come from Galilee. It was a belief that was taught to them by the religious leaders. Because we'll see in just a moment in verse 52, the very Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they believe that no prophet arises from Galilee. Here's why I point all that out, all that out to you. And I need you to, to get this. They couldn't take Jesus at face value because the Jesus in front of them didn't fit their preconceived notions of who the Messiah would be. And what we see with John 7, 40 through 44 is the people having to wrestle with the man standing in front of them and their preconceived notions of what they think he should look like, act like, and be like. And I need to tell you this morning, church, that same struggle exists today. I wonder... If there aren't times in our lives where we miss the moments Jesus shows up, because when he shows up, it doesn't look like we think it should look. He doesn't act the way we think he should act. And ultimately, he, is, he isn't being the type of Jesus that we want him to be. And so in other words, when we encounter Jesus, often it will challenge our preconceived notions of who he is. And I know this goes back to what we talked about just a few weeks ago with his brother, but John is trying to get us to see and understand this concept, which is why it keeps coming up that Jesus is Jesus regardless of whether he looks the way you think he should look. That Jesus is Jesus regardless of whether he acts the way you think he should act. Jesus is Jesus and he has never looked to us to define who he is and what he does. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, it is for our good that Jesus challenges our preconceived notions of who he is and what we think he should do. I'm going to give it to you the best I got, trying to get you with me this morning. I don't want to preach the end of my ser sermon too early, but I'm just going to give it to you now. You can do with it what you want. 
I'm so glad that Jesus doesn't bend to our notions. Because if he did, we would miss out on the better things he has for us. Nowhere do we see this more clearly than in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because even at this point in Jesus' ministry, Jesus is challenging everybody's notions of who the Messiah would be, right? He, though his hour has not yet come, Jesus has already told them that he is going to die and be raised from the dead. He will continue to tell them that he is going to die and be raised from the dead. Even in John chapter 2, he's already spoken of his resurrection when he told everybody that he was going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. And listen to me, the disciples wouldn't believe it. The Pharisees couldn't comprehend it. The government couldn't explain it, and the people weren't expecting it. Nobody's preconceived notion of God's promised Redeemer, a counted for a Messiah, crucified as a criminal, and then raising from the dead three days later. And nevertheless, he was crucified on Friday, and he got up on Sunday. And not for a moment did Jesus let the notions of others dictate his plan and his purpose. And church, we do praise God for that, because it's the reason we're standing here today. And what I'm trying to get you to see is that it is a good thing that Jesus doesn't bend to your desires. It's hard because often we want God to show up in very specific ways. We want him to answer prayers the way that we're asking. We want him to move in very specific ways. And it's hard when he doesn't. But if he did, you would always have less than what he actually plans to accomplish. Because Jesus is always able to do exceedingly and abundantly more than you could ever think or imagine. Encountering Jesus will challenge your preconceived notions of who he is and how it is he should, you think he should act. And I want to be clear. Being a Christian doesn't mean you don't have preconceived notions of the way God should act in your life. You know where I've seen that most of my own life? God's been working on me with this. I'm starting to get it, but it's still a process, right? This is my preconceived notion that the Lord has had to help me overcome in my own life. I'll say it like this. I often feel like I wrestle with the same struggle that Elijah did on the cleft of the rock. You know what I'm talking about? So Elijah had just seen God show his strength at Mount Carmel. Right? When, when God defeated the prophets of Baal, Elijah called down fire from heaven, and it, it soaked up everything. He saw this monumental, loud, grandiose display of God's power, and then he was threatened by a queen, and he took off running scared. The Bible says that Elijah ran for a whole day. You got to be scared, unless you're Chris Davis, <laughs> to run for a whole day. But then after that, he rested for a bit, got a little bit of food, and God led him into the wilderness for 40 days until he arrived at Mount Horeb. And he arrives there, and Elijah's just frustrated with God because what Elijah wanted was for God to show up in power again. He believed that he was all alone, and he wanted God to conquer his enemies for him. He wanted to see that fire come from heaven again. He wanted the grandiose display of God's power to be made known. And so he was hiding in a cave, waiting for God to move in that way again. And 1, King 19, 1 Kings 19 tells us that as he's in that cave, in the cleft of the rock, that God passed by. 
And first it says that there was a wind that was so strong that it literally started to tear the mountain into two. But God wasn't in the wind. After that, an earthquake occurred, toppled rocks falling all around him. Surely that's God. God wasn't in the earthquake. Then there was fire that started to burn up everything around him. I'm sure Elijah was like, that's it. That's what I saw before. Surely God is in this. And the Bible says God wasn't in the fire. But you see, that's what Elijah wanted. Elijah wanted to see God display his power in Elijah's life on Elijah's terms in the loud, the visible, the clearly seen ways. But then the text says this, that there came a still, small voice, a soft whisper, and the Lord was in the whisper, and Elijah was undone. You see, Elijah had this preconceived notion, just like I can at times, that God's power should always be and is best displayed as this loud power. It would be the wind. It would be the earthquake. It would be the fire. And if I'm honest, I can still be tempted to believe in those moments when I'm praying big things that, God, if you really wanted to show yourself off, you'd show off with the loud power. But see, what God was reminding Elijah, what God's reminding me constantly is don't miss the whisper. You see, I like the way that the Reverend Dr. Joel Gregory taught it. He said this. He said, you do know that God has a quiet power. God has the kind of quiet power that makes the sun rise every morning and he doesn't even wake you up. God has the kind of quiet power that keeps our earth tilted at just the right angle so that we don't freeze or burn to death. God has that kind of quiet power that commands a legion of army angels to fight for you and watch out for you and you are never aware. God has that kind of quiet power that can take a heart of stone and make a heart of flesh, and you don't even need anesthesia. God has that kind of quiet power that shows up in a whisper, and in that moment, there is a peace that passes understanding. But if we only look for the hand of God in our preconceived notions of God, we will miss some of his best work every time. And if we only look for Jesus, and our preconceived notions of who he is and how we should act in our lives, we will miss some of his best work. It's taken me a minute to realize this, and I can still wrestle with it. Because like Elijah, I've had this notion that the best displays of God's power are always loud. When in fact, I'm convinced now more than ever that God does some of his best work without making a sound. And I wonder what preconceived notion you might have that this morning is preventing you from encountering Jesus for who he truly is. Once again, encountering Jesus will challenge our preconceived notions of who he is and what we think he should do. But there's more we see in the text. Not only does encountering Jesus challenge our preconceived notions of who he is, but encountering Jesus challenges how we live our very lives. Encountering Jesus challenges how we live our lives. Look with me at the beginning, beginning there in verse 45. It says, Then the servants came to the chief priests and the Pharisees who asked them, Why didn't you bring him? The servants answered, No one ever spoke like this. Then the Pharisees responded to them, Are you fooled too? 
Have any of the rulers or Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd, which doesn't know the law, is accursed. Nicodemus, the one who came to him previously and who was one of them, he was a Pharisee. He said to them, our law doesn't judge a man before it hears from him and knows what he is doing, does it? You aren't from Galilee too, are you? They replied, investigate and you will see that no prophet arises from Galilee. You see, we actually see this reality that when we encounter Jesus, it changes the way we live our lives, fleshed out in a few different ways in these verses. We see it with the servants, we see it with the Pharisees, and we see it with Nicodemus. So let's first look at the servants. It says there in verses 45 and 46, then the servants came to the chief priests of the Pharisees who asked them, why didn't you bring him? The servants answered, no man ever spoke like this. So let me kind of tell you what's going on. So these are, these are servants of the Pharisees. They were the ones sent by the Pharisees, sent by the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, to capture Jesus so that the religious leaders could then kill him. That was why they went to Jesus. These were individuals who had committed their lives to the religious leaders of the day. They would have been Levites as well. And so ideally for most of these servants, they're hoping that one day they too can become the religious leaders in the community. So they've bought in, hook, line, and sinker. You with me? They believed the Pharisees. They trusted the Pharisees. They understood the Pharisees to be the guardians of the law of God. And so they rationalized that if they're telling us to go get this Jesus, they're probably right that there's something wrong with him. They believed that the religious leaders they followed had an access to God like no one else. So the fact that they came back empty-handed is huge. They had defied the religious leaders. So when they're asked why they didn't have Jesus, they give a simple answer, but it conveys a sense of wonder. No man ever spoke like this. In essence, what they are saying is the same thing that Matthew presents in his gospel when he speaks of people being overwhelmed by Jesus' teaching and says that Jesus was teaching, he was teaching them like one who had authority and not like the other scribes. So they encounter something different when they meet Jesus. They were forced to consider the reality that maybe the Pharisees aren't right about Jesus. They were impressed, and hear me, to some degree believed Jesus when he said that he was the living water. It forced them to examine themselves. It forced them to examine what they believed and what they were doing, that maybe the Pharisees aren't the supreme authorities, that perhaps... We haven't been around the people who are the closest to God. Maybe there is something to this Jesus. That's the excuse they give, right? Why didn't you bring him? There was just something about him. We couldn't do it. It made them question themselves. It made them question what they believed because when they encountered Jesus, they encountered a person with such authority that it made them question all the other authorities in their life. In a very real sense, it made them question who they were as people and how they were living their lives. So in other words, when they encountered Jesus, they encountered more than a mere man. When they encountered Jesus, they encountered more than a good teacher. When they encountered Jesus, they encountered the one who holds all things together. They encountered the author of creation. They encountered the authority of God made flesh, and this made them question. Now, hear me. I'm not saying they fully believed yet. Maybe some did. I'm not guaranteeing they were convinced that he was the Messiah. But what I am saying is that they paint this 
picture of the beautiful reality that when someone truly encounters Jesus, it will force them to question some things. Now, I, I, need, you, I need you to feel the weight of this for a moment, the weight of what's actually happening in this encounter. I mean, it takes some sort of dogged determination to be willing to go kidnap a man in order to murder him. Like they knew why they were sent to go get Jesus. Go get him, snatch him, bring him to us. We're going to kill him. And they said, okay. And they believed that they were right and moral in doing this. What that also means is not only does it take some kind of person to make that decision, it takes some kind of person to change a person like that. Uh, and again, I need you to see how significant a mere encounter with Jesus can be. It has the potential to change everything. I mean, let me press in here a little bit. I think one of the reasons people don't question when Christians attempt to introduce people to Jesus is because often it's not actually Jesus we're presenting to people. Because the Jesus in John 7, his very presence demands that the most wicked stop and say, maybe there's something here. And I'm concerned that offering, we're pre often we're presenting a political Jesus that matches our politics. Often we're presenting a Jesus that we think won't offend somebody. Often we're presenting a Jesus that is made in our image rather than a Jesus whose image we are being conformed to. And I get it because presenting a Jesus like that, it won't force anybody to respond. And sometimes we're afraid how they'll respond. So we present a different Jesus. But listen to me, you aren't doing anybody any favors by failing to present Jesus to them as he actually is. Because it is better for them to encounter Jesus and be forced to acknowledge whether or not they believe in Jesus than to present a fake Jesus that they don't actually have to wrestle with in the first place. And I need you to know, brothers and sisters, our call has never been to change anybody. We just have to introduce people to the Jesus we claim to believe can change everything. Because here's the hard truth, and I'm just going to tell you at the front end. There will be people who will not respond favorably to Jesus. We actually see that in our text this morning with the Pharisees. Look at verses 47 through 49. Then the Pharisees respond to them. So they're talking to the servants. Are you fooled too? Have any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd, which doesn't know the law, is accursed. You see, it wasn't only the servants who had encountered Jesus. The Pharisees had already encountered him as well. And what we can't miss is that Jesus' life was a direct challenge to who the Pharisees were. I mean, remember, the, the Pharisees had the religious authority of the day. They were the ones who taught the law and attempted to observe the law. They believed as well that the common people were incapable of understanding the law on their own. Therefore, they viewed most people as ignorant and unclean. That's why they say in verse 49, but this crowd which doesn't know the law is a curse. They're just showing their cards. We think they're stupid and we think that they're cursed. But as a result of their belief, watch this, the Pharisees would not associate with the common Jewish people of society in everyday life for fear of becoming ceremonially unclean. Now, here's why Jesus is such a challenge to them. For the Pharisees, the people were a burden to be managed. But for Jesus, they were a people to be loved. And Jesus spent most of his time 
with the ones the Pharisees tried to avoid at all costs. So Jesus' very life and ministry challenged the Pharisees' superiority over the people as religious leaders. Because here you have Jesus already teaching as one with authority, not separated from the people but among them. Jesus challenged their status and their perceived superiority. It's my belief that that's actually why they wanted to kill him. It had nothing to do with Jesus' theology. I don't think it really even was about him claiming to be the Messiah. They wanted to protect what they thought was theirs, and they were willing to kill for it. Jesus challenged their status and their perceived superiority. So it's not a shock that by and large, they declare to their servants who return empty-handed, none of us have believed in him. Why are you? They appeal to themselves as authority. We're not believing in him. Why would you? We're the religious leaders. We're the elite. You have to do what we do. Again, they respond this way because Jesus is threatening their, their status. So they encountered Jesus as well. And their response was not favorable. But make no mistake, a rejection of Jesus is not evidence that you haven't encountered him. Here's what, what's very interesting. Though they claimed none of them had believed, here comes one of their own, Nicodemus. Look at verses 50 to the end. Nicodemus, the one who came to him previously and who was one of them, said to them, Our law doesn't judge a man before it hears from him and knows what he's doing, does it? So they replied, you aren't from Galilee too, are you? Investigate and you will see that no prophet arises from Galilee. I love this interaction. Sometimes the Bible's funny. This is a funny interaction because there's so much irony in this conversation. So remember how the Pharisees are so threatened by Jesus that they start arguing that the people cannot even comprehend the law? You remember? You remember? Well, what is it that Nicodemus says? He says, well, based on the very law you claim to hold to, you shouldn't be trying to kill Jesus right now. That's verse 51. Our law doesn't judge a man before it hears from him and knows what he's doing, does it? And what Nicodemus is referring to is Deuteronomy 1, verses 16 and 17, and Deuteronomy 17, verses 2 through 5, in which God commands the leaders of Israel to judge cases fairly by examining the evidence, by giving a hearing to those who are being accused, and by showing no partiality. So Nicodemus is saying this law you claim to hold to, you're actually violating it yourself. Now, at this point in John, I just want to say, I believe that Nicodemus is either on his way to faith or he has it already. I do think by the end of this sucker, Nicodemus will be a Christian. He might be or he might just still be searching. But notice that the Pharisees don't really engage with what Nicodemus actually says because he got them, right? With the law, he got them. So they do what every 12-year-old on the playground does. They just start making fun of him. Like they start taunting him. Have you, you aren't from Galilee too, are you? Right? Investigate and you'll see that no prophet arises from Galilee. But here again is why this is so ironic. There were prophets from Galilee. There's a man named Jonah. There's a man named Hosea. There's a man named Nahum. And I think the case can be made for Elijah, Elisha, and Amos all coming from Galilee. So once again, they show that this isn't really about the law at all. They don't actually know the law. They simply want to keep their status. 
Now, here's what I want you to see with all of this. Everyone in John chapter 7 who encountered Jesus, who actually encountered Jesus, was challenged to consider what they believed and how they were living their lives. And there are only two responses. One from the servants and Nicodemus who are considering who this Jesus is and what he claims. But second, those who encounter Jesus and just flat out reject him. But make no mistake, both are encountering Jesus and everything is changing. Some are drawing near, but some are being pushed away. I've said it before and I'll say it again. No one encounters Jesus and leaves the same way they started. You are either being drawn closer to him or you are running further from him. But no one stays the same because encountering Jesus always changes everything. But can I tell you the best news and then I'm in my seat? Jesus wants to be encountered. The purpose of this gospel, the book of John, is that you might believe, that you might encounter Jesus and believe. The purpose of this church is to help people encounter Jesus. But if none of those convince you that Jesus wants to be encountered, the reason Jesus came was so that you and I could encounter him. Because John has already reminded us in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. In other words, God loves us so much that when we couldn't get to him, he wanted us to encounter him so much that he came to us. That's the beautiful gospel that we believe, that our sin has separated us from God and that on our own, there is nothing we can do to be made right with God. We can't get to God on our own, but God loves us so much that he sent Jesus so that we might encounter him. And he lived the perfect life that we should have lived. He died the death that we deserve to die. He was crucified, buried, and raised from the dead. And the Bible tells us that he was crucified for our transgressions, and he was raised for our justification. And in his resurrection, we find hope and life and the ability to dwell with God for all of eternity by believing the truth of the gospel that I just told you, by turning from your sin and following after Jesus. And the gospel screams to us. The cross declares, the empty tomb proclaims that Jesus wants to know you. He wants to encounter you. And so as we close, let me say this. If you're here and you're a believer and there are things in your life that you know need to change, maybe the answer isn't to try harder. Maybe the answer is that you just need a fresh encounter with the Jesus who can still change everything. And he loves you, and he is still working for your good. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Maybe the answer isn't all of these steps you're trying to implement. Maybe it's that you just go and encounter Jesus afresh and anew. And if you're here and you've not trusted in Jesus, I want you to know that Jesus still wants you. And he still wants you to encounter him. And I would love to. As we wrap up, I'd love to talk to you more about that. You can grab me or any of the other pastors. But church, I just want to leave you with this. Make no mistake that encountering Jesus changes everything. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for the faithful testimony that you have consistently given us.
that you are a God who loves us. We thank you for the truth that we just proclaimed that when we could not get to you, you came to us. You made yourself known so that we might encounter you and in you find hope and salvation and life eternal. And so, God, I pray that you would give us grace to believe that what we need more than anything is to encounter Jesus. It's in his precious name we pray. Amen.